Welcome to another episode of The Greatest Pod, where we discuss and debate what makes something great. I'm Ed Greer. I'm Ron Swallow. And I'm producer Bill. And today we're going to talk about the greatest scores in movie history. We've done soundtracks, so we've got that out of the way, and now it's time to give props to the composers that make our movie dreams come true. Yeah, and it's going to be great because I'm going to be like, this is some of the stuff that I remember liking, and you guys will probably know who did it. It's going to be awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, that's totally fine. I think in general, people maybe don't pay as much attention to film scores as film nerds do, which is why a conversation like this is, you know, appropriate. Yeah, it's also interesting because it it's so important to the movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've seen those weird TikTok videos or weird YouTube videos where someone changes the score to a scene and you're like, this is a way different scene now. It really is part of selling the atmosphere, just like lighting or just like anything. The score is part of it. Speaking of which, I just first off the top of my head, out of the box, the score to Aliens. I don't know yeah. if James Horner did the score for Alien. I don't really remember. But I do know that he did the score for Aliens. Mm. And that score is insane. It's got all that military trilling and just different like marchy sort of sounds and stuff. It really puts you in the mind frame of you're a soldier. Like the music sounds like a march. And and, and when it gets crazy and it starts trilling up with all the all the horns and the, 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 when the shit is getting real and then there's acid all over your shotgun and you're just backing into the elevator. The, the sounds that are playing in there are so discordant that you really are there. You are there. They're right on top of us, man. They're right, they're right <laughs> on top of us. <laughs> yeah. I, so just to clarify, he did not do uh, the score for the original Alien. And that's a really good one to lead off with because if you look at Aliens versus Alien, same subject matter, same lead actress, same villain, and two wildly different movies – and I think the score reflects that. Yeah, yeah. The, the the score for Alien is very is is very um, pensive and very in the back. Mm. It isn't. It doesn't overpower you with notes or anything. It's kind of a, it, it, you know, it's almost like an early A twenty four score or something like a very eerie very, sounds. Yeah, almost atonal. I mean, it 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 exists in that world that Ridley Scott created, which is almost understated. You know mm-hmm. it. it as much as it takes place on a giant deep space spaceship, that movie doesn't really make a big deal of itself. Like everything, everything happens and it looks beautiful, but like, it's not the kind of bombastic movie that a James Cameron action film is. And aliens, the second in the, in the series is very much a James Cameron action film. Um, And it turned out it was a a guy named uh, Jerry Goldsmith. He also did The Omen in 1976, so clearly he has uh, some horror chops. Very much mm-hmm. so, yeah. Uh, just finding out how rhythmic you want to be and how scary. Like, that the whole the Damien music has to be, like, rhythmic Gregorian chanting. Oh, oh Damien, how the fuck you want? Push the maid off a fucking ladder. <laughs> I believe those are the words to that score. Uh-huh. They've just been removed from it, yeah. Yeah, when you well, find the uh, lyric track. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to talk Jerry Goldsmith, that's an interesting name because uh, I, I, he's, I don't believe he's around anymore. I think he, he passed away a little while ago. 
But that was a guy who really defined um, a lot of the film sound of the 70s and 80s. So he, uh, I think, most significantly was composer on all of the theatrical Star Trek films, um, at least for like the, the original run that had the original cast uh, possibly leading up into the next generation. But he was the, the, the Roddenberry cast was definitely Jerry Goldsmith. Also mm. scored Planet of the Apes, Logan's Run, Total Recall. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. the, the entire Rambo franchise. Well, again, until they relaunched Rambo, the entire mm -hmm. Rambo franchise. Oh, so, and one of our favorites, mm. Air Force One. Oh, that's an interesting <laughs> callback to our uh, Greatest Action Heroes episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was supplying when he was like, when he said, get off my plane. And he kicked that fool. The score that came up, that's Jerry Goldsmith dropping the needle drop on you from. But you so the weird part was it was uh, they were going to do it's raining men. <laughs> <laughs> and then decided not to do that. So that's what I don't know if you guys knew that. At the end of Batman 89, too, when the Joker falls, but then they hired Prince to do the score and they didn't get yeah. the lights. Ridiculous. <laughs> I, I do want to give props to Jerry Goldsmith, though. A great yeah. score that is not really of a piece with his other work is L.A. Confidential, which mm. uses some of those jazz notes, like big horns, but in that very kind of like 1940s mystery noir way. Um, sets an amazing scene for that movie and is not the kind of like horror action kind of understated but like driving sort of music that he usually works with. Well, what are some of the movies that you remember because of their score besides fucking Jaws for Christ? Although we I can mean, talk I, about Jaws a little bit. The two notes. Yeah, why don't we talk fantastic. about Jaws to get it out because we do have to talk about it. <laughs> the two notes is super great and and the whole the whole old saw about you know it's used to as a proxy for the actual creature yada 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 yeah. but i mean when you know music that well to be able to know that you need to strip it down to two notes that's pretty brave to me like when you know music that big and you go like nah the best tool for this is bub bub that's that's real genius that's real musical genius no it is and i, I you know I think the guy who working today works in that style often is Hans Zimmer, which again is sort of an obvious one. If you look at sort of modern working composers, he might be the best one. Um, but he's a guy who is so musically gifted that he knows when to strip it back and when to work with, you know, single notes, dual notes, um, really understate the music in a way to let it shine because you, you know, you're not trying to complicate it in such a way that it, you know, is doing more than it needs to do. But yeah, I think Jaws is the perfect example of music that doesn't do more than it needs to do. I got to say, I remember The Shining having scary sound. And I couldn't tell you exactly what the theme is or what the, you know, any of that sort of thing is, but I know it scared the crap out of me. Well, as I'm thinking about it, I don't know that The Shining, like, has themes or motifs uh, as they would call it in music it's all I, I believe that music is just deployed in kind of like a jump scare way 
yeah. when when you see things, you get the shrieking violins or like the big horn notes, and like when the blood is you know coming out of the elevator, you have some sort of weird sustained. I, I almost want to say it's a single note, but mm-hmm. it's not like what you know. I think very famously, like when Danny is riding his tricycle around the hotel, you're just getting the natural sound of the squeaking wheels and his and his feet on the pedals and this and that. But then in moments like where you see, you know, the people in costume in room 237 or whatever it is, that's where the music kind of fades up again in that very, you know, atonal way to just highlight the horror of what you're seeing. When film composers look at an actual score, an actual score job, Mm. do you think that they think of those jobs as the same or worth the same or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Do you think that, I mean, they know music so that they go, ah, Oh, you got another a 24. So what do you do? Take a wet <laughs> banana and smear it across a timpani drum for 50, 50 hours again and charge them. Up? I'm trying to think there's a famous story of, um, an action movie. And I can't quite remember what it was, they had tempted in the score. So, you know, for people who don't know, just to, to do this really quickly, when editors are editing the, the movie, so much of your rhythm of editing is dependent on how you're using sound and music. But a lot of the times when the editors start working, the music isn't written yet. And in fact, for a lot of movies, the music isn't written until after the editor is pretty much done with their job. And then the composer writes the music to enhance what the editor has done. And there's some back and forth there. But usually a lot of the editing happens before the music comes in. So what happens is the editors will pull literally scores from other movies to just give a feel of like what it's going to be. Oh, you know what it is? This is why I was connecting it. It's Kubrick. So for 2001, they were using classical music as temp music. And then Kubrick hired a composer to score the entire movie. And he wrote the entire score and Kubrick realized he'd rather use the classical music because the score made it worse. So that that famous Thus Spock Zarathustra, that when you see the monolith, that's a piece of music from like the 1800s. And they originally were just using that as a placeholder but Kubrick had to had to hear the score that they paid for before he went, no, 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 we're going to go with the temp music. Well, in that case, it's like it's it's kind of like how um, uh, Conan, right? They, uh, Oliver Stone does the whole draft about Conan being part of mutants in the future, fighting a giant revolution and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, cast of thousands smashing each other in canyons, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Just the biggest thing you could ever see. And then John Milia said, yeah, I paid it for a screenplay and a game screenplay credit because for me reading that fever dream, I was able to come up with this simple story of Conan. You know what I mean? So it's like, sometimes you got to see the opposite to know what you want or you have, you have to see, get some choices to know what you want. Yeah. So here's one that kind of comes to mind as we're talking about, you know, that whole temp score versus score written for the music and, and actually horror movies as well. The exorcist. So the original exorcist has that, uh, do do now that see, I always get it confused because Halloween also a great score written by John Carpenter. Um, you almost can't do it with your mouth though, but it, if you think about it, The Exorcist has that really ominous, 
almost xylophone score. Oh yeah, it's a it's 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 called something something bells. Hold it's on, called what, what, tubular, what, what, it's called tubular yeah. bells. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that music is so associated with that movie, but that was actually a composition that predated the movie. It was it was a British musician named Mike Oldfield who wrote who wrote this you know non lyrical musical composition on an instrument called the tubular bell, which is this really weird take on a xylophone. It's essentially a xylophone made out of like hollow pipes. And so he released it. It was actually like a best-selling album in the UK. And the producers of The Exorcist bought the rights to make it the main theme of that movie. But I always think that's hilarious that the main theme of The Exorcist, which in context is so unsettling, was actually just made as like easy listening music by a musician. Well, I mean, it just shows you that like once the art gets out of your hands, it's in somebody else's hands. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that, that the p- people call it the death of the author or whatever. It's just, no, when you put something out, you have no, you are not in charge of how it's received. You yeah. thought it was easy listening. It is the stuff of my nightmares, you know? And it's, yeah. it's the rare artist who can like make money, even though their stuff is grotesque. On some level, you know what I'm saying? Like you make something that you think is beautiful. People find it grotesque. You still find a way to sell it. Hats off to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm no, saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I love, I love that. stuff. and you know what? Uh, legend has it. That dude like keeps working on that song or he keeps re-recording it with more and more tracks as more and more, as more and more tracked instruments became available. Mm. He went back and did it over and over again with more and more tracks. So he wouldn't have to like layer them in that like four track way or whatever, or whatever the technology was at the time. He, he was able to lay it over and over again with more and more, you know, kind of like the, the whole full specter of it all. He started getting obsessed with how, how much, how he could individually tune each thing without having to erase any data or whatever, you know, the crazy part about it is all of that is like very George Lucasian, Mm. you know, (laughs) Good call. Uh, you know what I mean? Just this sort of like, I, as soon as I get more tools, I'll do more work. You know what <laughs> I mean? Well, speaking of George Lucas, I feel like, you know, we got the Jaws discussion out of the way. We should almost just get the entire John Williams discussion out of the way. Like, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, let's just cop to the fact greatest film composer of all time, bar none. He wrote E.T., Indiana Jones, Star Wars, Superman the movie, Jurassic Park, um, Schindler's List, you know, pretty much every great Spielberg movie he was the composer on, plus a dozen other great franchises beside. Like, the guy is just an absolute legend, and rightfully so. So, Yeah, and John Williams is the best part of the prequels, which, you know, that's saying something. Favorite piece of Star Wars music, even if you can't really name the like piece or whatever, like because the whatever that duel of the fates that all that shit that's happening. Yeah. Oh man, that's way up there. I think that might be mine out of the whole canon. And I'm talking about the Imperial March. I'm talking about all type of shit. Mm -hmm. The duel of the fates is up there to me because it was the only thing keeping me tethered in the scene. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's good. It's really good. It's, it's it's powerful. I mean, I wouldn't want to listen to it every day, but like uh, when you wake up to it, it's like, oh, let the fight the fates. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I like Darth Vader's boom, 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 boom. Which one is that called? That's the Imperial March, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's the Imperial March. Yeah. yeah. I like the I like the Tatooine score that has like the little bit of the darker flair to it. Like what 
what's playing when he finds Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru's dead bodies? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, no, and then they yeah. they call back to it like in episode eight when he fades, mm-hmm. and you know, and you're just left looking at the two sons, and I can't. Mm-hmm hum it off the top of my head because it is more of like a swell it's like an orchestral swell but that's the one that get that's the one that gives me goosebumps it's almost like a middle ground between the big adventure you know the, the one that starts the movie every time and like the imperial march it's like this slow more somber tone uh i i want to give him a shout out not to veer too far from star warsville but like i gotta give him a shout out for the non shark parts of jaws like when you're when you're supposed to feel like tally ho let's go do this stuff even in 1975 that's some corny ass music if you're gonna play some tally ho let's go let's be on the seas music that's some corny ass shit and i'll listen to that part when they when they got their get up and go and they, and they got two barrels in them and they're chasing them and all that shit i'll listen to that any old day he manages what, to make it cool you you as a black man don't trust sea shanties? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many people heard a sea shanty right before some real terrible shit happened? <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, dude. What's like, that I hear on the horizon? Slowly, getting, <laughs> slowly getting louder. Uh, and even and either, any role you want to play with that pirate shit is all yeah, bad. It's bad for it, somebody. No, it's all it's all terrible. Uh, but yeah, I but I, you know what I'm saying? I, I felt like he did good in the parts that aren't just, duh, duh, you know what I'm saying? There, there, there's crescendos in there. There's triumphal moments when characters do something cool. There's nice little stings when the shark comes out of the water and they talk about, we need a bigger boat. There's, there's a lot of work going on that isn't just the two notes and the simple theme. Yeah, I agree with that. I think John Williams deploys flutes in a way that's probably huh. better than any other composer. Um because that's usually what you get when you get that just that kind of rollicking good time with the trills. Like it's always this very light staccato flute music. And like you'll see that in everything from his score to like Catch Me If You Can, even to Jurassic Park, like in the lighter moments of Jurassic Park. It's like there's something about it makes sense because most of Spielberg's movies are in one way or another chase movies. But there's something about the chase scene that John Williams always finds a way to make it light and bouncy. And I think that kind of comes down to, to, to um, instrument selection. Like he, he loves using like flutes and oboes and like, you know, higher, tr- more, more shrill woodwinds to really get your blood racing, as opposed to people who might use like pounding timpani drums or something. He, you know, it's, it's a nice contrast with the way that like his darker, scarier music feels way more full and way more bass heavy. It's like in the moments when we're running, Indiana Jones, another great example. Like in the mm-hmm. moments when we're running, everything gets high and short and quick. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things that's like because I okay, I took a music appreciation class, and and I gotta say, it's kind of cool when you learn a few of those things that you never really thought about, like specific notes sounding more exciting mm-hmm. or making you more sad. Like literally, there are notes that sound more sad and uh, I believe they're flats. It's been a while. So I don't, I don't remember exactly, but it's one of those things that's like wild to think about that. This guy not only learned everything about music, but then learned how to elicit emotions from a scene and enhance that scene with that music so that the motion emotions were brought forth. That's wild to me. Like I, I, I assume 
that when a guy's working on something like this, that's what they're doing, right? They go, okay, I want this emotion from this. Here is a a, a sound that comes from that. Now mm-hmm. let's let's turn it into something more more flowing and and it's wild to me because uh, basically the only sounds in my head are screams and. Uh, <laughs> And, <laughs> and I don't know, moans, maybe a little bit of moaning, <laughs> some, some worries. So like, I don't know, so whatever sound worry makes, that's the, in my head, you know. Inside your head is event horizon and shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> but it's just wild to me that these guys did this and then, and then not only did it, but consistently John Williams has nailed everything he's done he has like written an era defining score in like six decades you know what i mean like in six different decades Mm -hmm. it's like every every five to ten years there's a new john williams score that's just like a new pinnacle in, in soundtrack and frankly it's quite sad he now has retired from writing new scores um but apparently indiana jones the dial of destiny, whatever this new Indiana Jones movie is, he is back for that. And so Spielberg, I think got him out of retirement to do one last score or, or was that the Fablemans? Cause I think he did also score the Fablemans. See, now I don't know. I'm pretty sure he's scoring Indiana Jones, the dial of destiny. Well, I mean, I think that'd be appropriate, obviously. I mean, I would, I would kind of hate to hear some like, you know, just imagine. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, Yes. It's it's the dude who did a forty eight hour score and he comes on. <laughs> it's like but I think bing 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 just all steel drums from now on <laughs> and Indiana Jones. Often because he has sort of established the the music for a lot of different franchises, people do pick up his work and run with it. And it's never as good as when he does it. We were talking about James Horner earlier. That was James Horner that did the, the forty eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> what were you gonna say, Ron? Well, you uh, you made that sound, and it made me think of Deliverance. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. That banjo riff in Deliverance is one of the most iconic music riffs in, in movies. And it's so funny because to us, we hear that sound, and it's funny. And the thing that's happening in that moment is not funny. Well, <laughs> well, well, it's not in that moment. It's well, been laid. Oh, yes. it's been yes. associated with that by proxy. Yeah. yeah. But, but even I, then, you get what you're saying. The stuff that's happening in that is it's just interesting how that because that's iconic. I also wanted to point out to, to to remember what movie it was from. I looked up. You got a pretty mouth. And I don't think <laughs> I don't think that's cool. Like, uh, I feel bad about it. And that riff i don't know what else to call it like that little piece of music has become so synonymous with <laughs> being raped by swamp hillbillies yeah like i don't know how else to put it that like you hear it in like there have been simpsons episodes where they just use that one piece of music and it's like that is the joke you know what i mean <laughs> like yeah we know what joke they're music. making you don't even right. have to say it right it's yeah. Oh, and just crazy. just to be clear, I, I don't think anybody here knows who did the score to Deliverance, but Man- Mandel and Weisberg did the dueling banjos part, where mm. it was like the guy comes in, and which was kind of interesting because like, okay, 
if we're going to talk about this, we're going to damn talk about it. The kid is obviously supposedly some evidence of so-called inbreeding, even though these are like Arkansas dudes going to like deeper Arkansas or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like these guys are not more evolved than the knuckle draggers they're running into, but let's say they're trying to make that point. Mm-hmm. So they go and see this kid on the on the on the on the porch that's inbred or whatever, or had some physical physical um differences. And so, but that kid living his life because he could play the hell out of banjo. And the dude is playing his guitar and he's playing his banjo, and they're they're really communicating. Maybe for one of the first time this kid's had in a week. Mm-hmm. The rest of these people around him aren't geniuses and savants. They probably leave him fallow there for hours at a time, but these city folk come in, they play, and we can talk, we can have fun. And that image of friendliness is utterly shattered later <laughs> when Jesus, it really comes it? down to it. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And I just think that, that there's some part of them. The music is part of that. The music is part of sealing that to make that violation happen even worse. Yeah. You know, that happens worse. I think the music, that music interlude is part of what makes it as horrifying as it can actually be. Yeah, absolutely. And it does teach you a very important thing. And, and that's that if you want to have a musically talented child uh, to bang your sister. <laughs> so, uh, Ron, sometimes I think, I think you might learn the wrong lessons from movies. I don't know. Uh, you know what? <laughs> you wouldn't right. be the first one. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm trying to be a Coke dealer, so I could be like, Tony Montana, baby. <laughs> <laughs> oh man oh, i was like i just wanted to have a okay that's ridiculous push it to the limit <laughs> limit that's ron's theme of this episode push it uh-huh. to the limit no but i i do agree that um push it to the limit is a great needle drop in the in the soundtrack of scarface and i do think that one of the main things that made scarface pretty cool is that it had good music I think it would be more on our well, soundtracks yeah. episode than the score sure. episode. But For I think sure. the the score is pretty good, and all the all the songs. Like I think even that that lonely synth riff that plays after Tony's dead that cements that this world is gone, and it has these synthetic claps in it that like the thunderbolt coming through to split the clouds over Tony's existence as he's dead or whatever the fuck. That shit is all synth, and I think that score. So I think that that's actually score, not a not a song. Yeah, I mean, I, you're right on that. It, it would be it would be score, and you get me thinking with mentions of synth, like the greatest synth score ever done, Vangelis for Blade Runner. Oh, original, hardcore! I mean, that original Blade Runner score is so weird and so of its time. Like it's it's all at once so 80s and so futuristic and so unlike almost any other movie, which I think Can we, describes yeah. all of Blade Runner. Yeah, I I agree with that, but I also raise you the uh, the Tangerine Dream score that uh, for like Thief and shit like that when Michael Mann starts coming on the scene and oh. it's the eighties uh-huh. and it's like it's like the it's like Vangelis is like the cloud side of the synth wave and 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 uh, Tangerine Dream was like the the the, the ground level street level the version of it yeah yeah the, yeah exactly I get that. But they're called Tangerine Dream. <laughs> yeah, which is weird. But yes, you're not you're not wrong there. Um, that's that's kind of wild. I wanted to go back just to just to wrap up our John Williams conversation. Can yeah. we each name like our three favorite John Williams pieces of music? Because it is kind of nuts. Like just the amount that he's done. Um, 
I think I I think I have at least two that are like that have to be top three for me, but I'm I'm chewing over a third one. I mean, whatever plays when Indiana Jones like like the whip cracks and some guy gets punched or maybe the power of the punch made a sound exactly like a whip crack. Cause we're working through, you know, Paramount's sound library from everything sure. for the Wilhelm scream to this <laughs> and whatever sound comes up after that, whatever version of the indie theme that comes up after that is my favorite piece of music or, or, or at least top three, you know, like that, whatever way they choose to phrase it, depending on like what his action was. If it's a thunderous punch, it comes in big. If it's him slipping out, it, it's a, dun, 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 dun. I just love that. And, and let, let me go off on a little bit of a tangent here because that's such a great point that just those couple notes, right. That dun, 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 is used so much throughout the Indiana Jones scores and in so many different ways. And this is something that many composers don't do anymore, which is compose what's called a leitmotif Mm -hmm. um, German word. But the leitmotif is like essentially the character's signature collection of notes. Like it's not a song. It's not an entire composition, but it literally is like the dentarenta in Indiana Jones that you can then pepper throughout the score whenever you need to have that triumphant moment, or in the case of a villain, a threatening moment. And Williams does that so masterfully where he threads these different pieces of music throughout the score to really give you the ups and downs of like, who's up, who's down, who's winning, who's losing, who turns the tables because his different characters and the different factions all have their own leitmotifs. Um, the Superman score does that incredibly well too. The Star Wars yep. score does that incredibly well too. Mm-hmm. Um, the Harry Potter score even does that incredibly well yeah, too. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah. The Jurassic Park score does that because, like, the human characters and the dinosaurs have different elements of the score to them, and that to me that signifies a really great composition. Is where it's it's not just appropriate for the mood of the moment but it makes the movie feel more holistic because of how it's used throughout. You know what I mean? Like scoring a movie is not as simple as writing a great score for a scene. The music has to become part of the storytelling. And and again, Williams is just one of the undisputed masters of that. Yeah. 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 Well, just to, just to throw mine out there, the, the love theme from Superman, the movie is one of my all-time favorite pieces of film music in general. And yes, it plays during that moment where Lois Lane starts reciting poetry and voiceover while they're flying together. (laughs) But if you can ignore that, (laughs) it's one of the most beautiful pieces of of movie music ever written. And it's the... And it... It uses leitmotifs from the Smallville compositions, but it it essentially um, recontextualizes them in this more romantic way, merging them with Lois's leitmotifs. And so in the score, it essentially tells you that he's found his like a new sense of home with this woman, which mm-hmm. honestly does more work to sell their relationship than the script does in that movie. 
Um, hey, hey, you know Bill, what? Bill, you know what, Bill? Bill? I will not have you besmirch this writer. <laughs> Speaking Dude. her poems to. Okay. Anyways, can, <laughs> can you read my mind? Do you know that I like <laughs> get in the shower? I think about Superman all the time, but this that I think of this icky guy named Clark, and I go, oh, look. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if you have any questions about the uh, credibility of that poem, let me recite two stanzas for you. Oh, please do. You can fly. You belong in the sky. <laughs> two actual lines from that poem. It, that rhymes. <laughs> and that I don't see the problem. Poetry. I don't see the problem there. <laughs> <laughs> Lois Lane's got bars, people. That's what we're saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dude, Lois Lane let's, would let's get just change the up. beat a little bit. Lois Lane would get eaten up in any cipher anywhere. <laughs> she would get ripped up. You can fly. <laughs> oh my god. Um, but yeah, we were talking about like scores that we like super duper remember and blah blah. I I gotta say, I think all of the the those Jerry Goldsmith scores for action movies, uh, the the James Horner scores from like I think Commando and um, Forty Eight yeah. Hours and just weird stuff like that. I love I love the way certain eras sounded. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And then you, you see when you get and I love how, but I also love how timeless film music is because we look at something like Sergio Leone and them's uh, Ennio Morricone's yeah. scores. He worked until he died. Yeah. doing scores for movies he didn't have any dated sort of sound he did the work for the project if it was a 60s you know western so be it if it was a 90s uh you know actioner you know starring some b list guys or whatever you know scott yeah. scott atkins and robert de niro and this thing <laughs> <laughs> you know whatever did they ever do a uh, movie together because that sounds terrible <laughs> i would <wouldn't laughs> that. scott atkins spin kicks the shit out of robert de niro <laughs> I mean, that would be pretty great. I mean, Ennio Morricone definitely needs to be brought up for a minute here because that theme from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, when they're in the Mexican standoff, and it's just it's getting faster and faster with the whistling, yeah. um, mm-hmm. which I don't even know if I could do at this moment. But yeah. I mean, yes. that alone, the, it, one of those things that's it's iconic. Yeah. It's iconic, mm-hmm. period. Yeah. You think of Western, you think of that sound, Period. You don't think of anything else. I would say that that is up there with the with the dueling banjos yep. from uh, the name is running out. Deliverance. Deliverance. Mm-hmm. The dueling banjos from Deliverance and the dual notes from Jaws. Like yeah. it's just mm-hmm. this ubiquitous music that defines an entire genre. And it use yeah. and it uses the the things of that. Um, it does sound like it could have been made in that era. You know, I think that there are certain scores that do take stuff like that into consideration, not to move off of Ennio Morricone, but one of his sons in mm. this game, Basil Paladuris, who oh. did one of the most famous. You talked about earlier that certain people, um, he did the score to Conan, he did the, he did the score to Robocop, uh, he did the score to Starship Troopers, just to name three out of many. Yeah. But you see his sound through those three. And I think it's a good uh, lens. But he's a son of Morricone. And he did, when he was using the, uh, he restricted himself to to things that could sound ancient to do the score for Conan. Oh, interesting. He, he was like, he was like look, 
I'm only going to allow things to be so modern to be played on the thing. So that's why there was a lot of voice chanting because that's the original instrument. That's why there was a lot of drums uh, and, and and even like, uh, but you talked about temp tracking earlier, people like shooting a trailer or shooting a little bit of a movie and just doing a temp track. People have literally jacked the main bum, 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 from Conan and put it on movie trailers for their barbarian bullshit movies. Yep. To like try to sell it because yeah. there's something that that shit makes you feel in your guts. And I'm not going to be, I'm not going to use all these terms like your balls and shit like that. Whoever you are as a human being, there's something primal that gets up in you when you fucking listen to that score boom, or that boom, part boom, of that boom, score. Boom, boom, it's boom. powerful. It sounds like something's coming through. It gives a definite identity and it sounds old. It sounds like something for prehistory coming for you. Like yeah. Conan. <laughs> no, 100%. I mean, that is such a smart decision when you think about it because, dr- like, the sound of drumming is probably our first musical instrument, discounting the voice, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and there, there does have, like, just a stretched animal skin over a wood frame. There probably is some sort of primal response to that because it's something we've arguably been doing for a million years mm-hmm. you know what i mean and so every culture has them you know, yeah no matter it's, who. it's ubiquitous across culture and it's it, you would think that like it goes back to humans hunting animals and using their skins to make clothes like that is the same process that you use to make a drum so the mm-hmm. drum had to have been invented very very early in human culture um so that that makes sense number one to make the choice if i'm going to do a movie about this Hyborian age, which is essentially like this lost age of, of gladiator uh, warrior men, like let me use a primal instrument. And then, yeah, that idea of, of just creating a sense of like call and response with your audience, because you know that the audience, those, those big ass timpani drums just pounded is just going to get your audience going. Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, and uh, I know Ron loves this score. The RoboCop score does a different thing. It it is of the it doesn't it it sounds iconic, but of like a weird future because when when the score comes in, it's like bump 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 bumps. So it's like so you're scraping across something. It's some sort of section of strings slash smearing across the metal that's part of a drum or something. Some mm-hmm. weird stroke is used to make that. That trill at the end of bum 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 whatever that sound is, it is out of this world. It is it is metal. It's metal. It's metal as part of RoboCop's theme. You know what I'm saying? As he comes to come fuck with you, or at least it sounds like metal. It gives the impression of metal, almost like when you see people draw 2D metal, and you're like, how the fuck is he getting off that it's metal that it has a reflective surface just in a few lines. Right. That's what Homeboy's doing in the in the score. Right. And he does a similar thing in, in Starship Troopers with a bunch of military marches. Again, everything in Starship Troopers sounds like military uh medleys and stuff like that. And like I said that's why I think he's the son of Morricone because Morricone does that across his entire thing. Stupid hateful eight. I hate that movie. But every soundtrack, every sound hit in that movie means something. The score's doing a lot to help these basically static scenes in one place. Yeah, I, I mean, before we move off it, I do want to say for RoboCop though that heroic leitmotif that da, 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 
that is like some classic John Williams style composing. Like you can put whatever weird sounds over it and use whatever weird instruments, but that's another one where they use it in a bunch of different points of that movie in a bunch of different contexts and it means different things, but it keeps coming back because that really is an iconic piece of composition for that character. Uh, along the RoboCop lines and with that, making a futuristic uh, sound is, is Terminator 2 and, uh, and the first Terminator as well. But I think Terminator mm -hmm. 2 more more likely. Yeah, I mean, those movies, again, the leitmotif for the Terminator, the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, mm -hmm. is used many different times. What's interesting, though, is like I don't, I don't recall either John Connor or Sarah Connor or Miles Dyson, like anybody else, having a real strong leitmotif. Mm -hmm. um, like music that plays every time they come around, music right. that, yeah. I don't remember that either. I'm curious. And you know what's even more interesting? I'm thinking now about the scenes in Terminator 2 where John Connor first encounters Arnold in the, the back hall of the mall and the scene where Sarah Connor first sees him in the hallway of the asylum. I think both of those are kind of atonal, if I'm remembering correctly. Like they're both just kind of like one drawn out note and they kind of go into that almost... Um, you know, like a bomb went off near you and everything drops out and you just have yeah. that one kind of atonal note. Yeah. Which are interesting. Yeah. Those are like interesting early examples of using that technique because that would come up big in the 2000s, very influenced by what Hans Zimmer did in The Dark Knight with the Joker score or lack thereof. But yeah, it's kind of funny in a, in a score that does have such a strong main theme, you don't see all the other characters getting their own themes. You don't see a lot of work being done to like develop that theme into new musical compositions. Well, I, I think it's interesting that we're talking about uh, that guy who did both the score for Terminator one and Terminator two, because like Terminator one, you kind of doing it for a song, literally, you know what sure. I'm saying? You're just, yeah. you're just being like, yo man, I believe in this guy and, and his, and his, uh, and his, uh, editor slash producer friend who I think they're dating though. They look like they're dating anyway, you know, the Gail Ann Hurd <laughs> yes. and, and James Cameron come to you and they present themselves as these grown up business people with their long cuffs and they don't have money for dinner either and stuff like that. And they're pitching OJ Simpson, Arnold Schwarzenegger, you and another guy today. And they got all these meetings and they're just this fly by night outfit at that point. And they hire you to do the score really fucking quick on your, on your keyboard thingy for X amount of dollars. And then later when it's the biggest movie of all time to that point, they come back to you and say, you want to do it again? Mm. That's gotta be a great ride. Uh, we, we, uh, we looked at it up earlier off air with the Brad Fidel, the guy who did Brad. The, yeah. Uh, Brad Fidel. Here's an interesting fun fact about him. So the Terminator two score was like his last big score for movies. He retired from writing scores in 1995. And Whoa. just went on to become like just a just a, a musician. Like he's, I guess he creates musicals now. Um, but I don't know if he has wow. any like big credits as a musical book writer. Well, dude, but that's that's the thing. Like you get that James Cameron money, and then you can go <laughs> fuck off and do whatever you want. <laughs> yeah. Like I mean, I I would love to be like, oh, you know, a little known comedian and podcaster. Now recluse Ed Greer. What did he do? Uh, he he just sold some crap, you know. Whatever he did, yeah. something got some money. Uh, and what does he do now? 
No one knows. That's how rich I am. No one knows. I'm even more anonymous when I was, than when I was trying to get famous. No one knows what the fuck I'm doing. That's like the Gene Hackman mold, too. Like, you hit a certain age, and it's like, nah, I'm going to write novels under a pseudonym and not tell anybody who I am. Like, that's yeah. what he's been doing for the past 15, 20 years. Yeah, and I bet you they're hardcore. It's like, yeah, the old actors that got out of his chair and kicked the stunt man's fucking ass. That's what happened. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. I will give it up for uh, Brad Fidel. He did also do True Lies, so that was probably his last big score before he retired because True Lies comes out in 94. He retires in 95. Um, so I, I, I want to get us into some of the bigger names, and I'll just lead off with an obvious one. Alan Silvestri composed gonna... the score for Back to the Future. Huge. Uh, all-timer. Like, I I don't know if I could go... Like, Jurassic Park and Superman the movie have got to be in my top two... In my top three scores, but the Back to the Future score may be number three. Possibly tied, though, with the Rocky score, which we should also talk about, but... Oh, shit. Alan Silvestri you know, comes to prominence on Back to the Future and proceeds to work with both um, Zemeckis and with Joe Johnston, who was sort of Zemeckis's protege, pretty much through the rest of their careers. And so he's a guy, kind of like you were talking about with Brad Fidel, like comes out of nowhere, you know, writes the score for one of the biggest hits of all time. And instead of <laughs> becoming a rec- recluse and doing whatever he wanted, this guy just turned into one of the biggest um, film composers of all time. I still though, like, here's the other thing. I don't know that he's ever reached the heights of back to the future because that is absolutely iconic, but I do want to give him props for a movie that we denigrated when we were talking soundtracks. And that is Forrest Gump because the Forrest Gump soundtrack is the most on the nose, obvious choice of music that is almost schmaltzy in how, you know, just mainstream those picks are. But the score, the original music in Forrest Gump is fucking phenomenal. And like you, you lose it against the backdrop of, oh, I'm on heroin. So we're going to play some Jimi Hendrix music and, oh, we're in Vietnam. So we're going (laughs) to play, you know, uh, preacher, uh, Senator son, whatever that song is. Uh, fortunate son. Fortunate son. Yeah, you know, whatever. Uh, but you, you know what you just made me think of, though, uh, as a, as a tiny side tangent. But yes, to Please. get back to Silvestri, dude, we got robbed of things like the Jimi Hendrix score. Mm. Like Jimmy yeah. Jimmy Hendrix is an mm. old ass man with braids, and he's chilling out, and he lives in Atlanta with his with two wives. Don't ask, and he's just <laughs> doing this fucking thing, and him just just knocking out these ill ass film scores like like how like i mean you know just the, the old age musicianship of so-called star musicians musicians are built themselves up to be good and then the machine says you are this you are that which cuts your musicianship in half right there to yeah. fit into this box and then they they make their money off of you until you get too old or fat or both and then they stop fucking with you and then you can make all this beautiful stuff that was really in your heart and you got the money to finance it Mm. It's kind of how it works in music. And yeah. I would have loved to see the elder years of somebody like Jimi Hendrix. So some of the guitar gods like uh, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, people that that died before they got a chance to just sit on their fat ass 
and make some ill music for some movies. You know what I'm saying? Quincy Jones got to do it. If Quincy Jones was just restricted to trying to produce artists who were trying to make the charts or something, his career would have ended a long time before it did. He made film scores and produced music until the end because it's all one amorphous process. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, you brought up Alan Silvestri. And do you know what else he's done? Oh, I think I know where you're going, but just go ahead. Go for it. Uh, all the Marvel movies. Well, not all of them, but he did but write that them. iconic Avengers theme. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was and, Alan and, Silvestri. And the Cap, uh, the Cap theme. Well, yeah, because he, he, he uh, again, worked with Joe Johnson. First Avenger, yeah. And yeah, Joe Johnston directed Captain America First Avenger. That's yeah, and that call. theme is a really, really good theme. And actually, I just want to bring up in general, Marvel does a pretty good job uh, with most of their themes. Um, See, I would argue they don't. That's an interesting you really? point. I love yeah. Iron Man's. Does, what, I don't even know what his, what his theme is. I would I would argue that they're they're you know what I think the themes that Marvel does maybe even including the work of the, the genius Alan Silvestri are they're they're like that meal that you eat and they're it's present and it's great right then and then you forget about it like cotton candy or mm. something that's like not a meal it's like a thing that that is very sweet and good for the moment but it doesn't stick with you because I hum the fucking Iron Man theme right now I I can't do bum, it bum 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 Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I can see it. I can see it now when you get to the when well, yeah. you get the stuff. But and the but Black not, Panther not, one, although Alan Silvestri did not do that. But I was going to say that's Panther Ludwig. That's Ludwig Gorenson. Yeah, uh, we're, yeah. We, we definitely got some Ludwig talk coming as we round out. Yeah. But um, but the whole point of uh, Alan Silvestri is okay. You do a bunch of Marvel shit. You do Romance in the Fucking Stone. You do Delta Fucking Force, and yeah. uh, you know, Flight of the Navigator. All this crazy stuff, you know what I'm saying? And he and he's looking at the voice of each of these movies. And I think the reason why he may not have reached all the super heights of Back to the Future, how many of these other movies are as good as Back to the Future? Because I feel okay. like his his theme, his themes and his scoring for Predator is pretty fucking amazing. And Predator's Ooh. pretty fucking amazing. Yeah, and that that uses more of like jungle instruments. You know what I mean? That's more of like mm-hmm. woodwinds and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And even when he and even when he gets stuff like the da 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 that's where the military guys are at. Right. When it gets out in the woods, it does get a little woodwindy and a little bit of a stringy. Gets yeah. a little stringy because we're in a horror movie, but it right. doesn't overplay it too much. You know, because those are still kind of ancient instruments. For sure. I do want to give him props, though. We were kind of we were coming down a little hard on the Marvel movies. I do think the Avengers theme. Dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. That's iconic. Like that yeah, shit. That is. shit rocks hard. Yeah. So he he definitely deserves props for that. I last thing on Alan Silvestri. I always thought if you look at the Back to the Future theme combined with the Forrest Gump theme, which by the way, that's been copped in so many other movies, mm-hmm. and that was what he wrote for Forrest Gump. You put those together, that is like. I always wanted him to compose a Superman movie because I think he he would get that tonality better than any other composer I can think of. Okay, okay, real quick, real quick. This is worth it. He also did the score for Judgment Night. 
as you may recall, but listening to our soundtrack episode, I think we talked about the soundtrack of Judgment Night and how forgettable the movie is. Alan Silvestri did the actual score for Judgment Night. The score score. Dude, I I just want to just talk just real quick about the the thing of doing film scores is it's a J-O-B. You're not a touring musician necessarily. You're not all that stuff. It's a job. So you get a job, you knock it out, you move on. So your year can be uh, the bodyguard and sidekicks, which was his year in 1992. In 92, he does Death Becomes Her, Diner, the short film, I guess, uh, uh, a, a short film, uh, The Bodyguard and Sidekicks, right? Next year, it's Cop and a Half, Super Mario Brothers, Judgment Night, Grumpy Old Men, okay? They, okay, so that's 93. 94 is Clean Slate and Forrest Gump. You know what I'm saying? Like, That's like wild stuff, man. The yeah. wild vacillation between – he does Judge Dredd in 1995. He does Long Kiss <laughs> Night and Eraser in 1996, along with the Sergeant Bilko movie. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah. It, it's like to be a film composer, it's like I composes what they puts in front of me. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, fucking Popeye. It's a space movie. It's Predator. It's something beautiful. It's Cop and a Half. It's whatever they put in front of you. You got to come up with a theme. So it's like, what's the theme for the little kid with the bu- busted out teeth that is in Cop and a Half? Scoot doop doop. No. Doot doot doot. Yeah, that's kind of good. And you're just sitting there writing music for these this trash with the same vigor as Predator or this beautiful stuff that we revere. It's crazy to me. I mean, if you think about it, it is a little bit like the elevated version of writing jingles for commercials. Right. It's like you never know what's yeah. going to come across your desk. And at the end of the day, I don't want to say like you're slave to the material because you're putting in a lot of creative work. But like you're not doing anything to fulfill you necessarily. You just got to make it work for that movie. And yeah, so, yeah, it is. That's a, that's a great call. Ed. That's something really good to keep in mind, which makes it all the more impressive when a guy like John Williams can turn in the body of work that he has. Yes. And it also makes you realize why he can turn in the volume of work that he's done because it is. It's just like a couple movies a year, keep it cranking every year. Like that's just <laughs> keep how it, it works. Fucking cranking. Dude, if I was his agent, I'd just be like, oh man, you take care of yourself? Eating that B12? Yeah, you yeah. exercise that every day. You exercise that every day. Get that potassium up in you, boy. <laughs> <laughs> You need a banana? Oh. What do you need? You need some. <laughs> you got some, some water? orange slices. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, okay, it's, it's huge names. Alan Silvestri is up there. Ennio Morricone is up there as far as like the biggest ones that ever were. Because Ennio Morricone, I think he did Ronin, and he also did Fistful of Dollars and all those movies. Well, like and Ronin, the nineteen ninety two. That movie sound. That movie's score is actually amazing. And the other one, it is. is This gets drowned out by um, the dollars stuff, but Once Upon a Time in the West also has a phenomenal Mm. score by Morricone. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right about that. Yeah. All movies I've seen. (laughs) (laughs) Terrific. (laughs) Well, then he does stuff with uh, that. He worked with Quentin Tarantino and Kill Bill. You know, Mm. it's just like uh, he also did the pretty good soundtrack. I mean, not soundtrack score. Yeah, well, both. yeah, probably both. Yeah, both. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, I think, I don't know, man. That's just crazy. It'd be like you telling me that the dude who did, like, oh, uh, I guess uh, Bernard Herman, who did this, the the opening music for Psycho, 
Oh. I want to give him a little shout out because that shit is iconic as back fuck. into film history. Nice. Well, dude, I, I only remember Bernard Herman because I looked up who did the original music that they sampled for the Give Me Some Mo' video by Busta Rhymes. Busta Rhymes used to have this song. It was like, and it was like, yo, I got to flip it on him. Flip mode, flip mode is a squad. And then these uh-huh. drums come in. And I was like, that piece of music is iconic. Where's that from? It's from Psycho, the opening part of Psycho when they're playing the um playing the credits. And Bernard Herman did that. He was a frequent, I guess, collaborator with uh Mr. Hitchcock. Nice. Hitchcock. Nice. Yeah. Well, along those lines of just let's give a quick shout out. Bill Conti was the guy who wrote the original Rocky score, including that the iconic uh-huh. gonna fly. Like that was Bill. Oh, which is great. I mean, mean, that's that might be okay. Pepsi challenge Mm. that or the fucking Superman theme for most iconic shit of all fucking time. (laughs) That's hard. (laughs) You know, what's wild too? both of those like the Superman theme has now just become synonymous with superheroes. Like you, you hear that pulled out in in spoof movies in TV, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with the Rocky theme. It's like as a triumphant piece of music. Here's the thing, though. That Rocky theme, like it was most recently used in Creed 3 in a form that was almost unrecognizable. But when you hear mm. those fucking notes, man, those goosebumps just flow. It's uh-huh. unbelievable. Yep. Yep. Oh. Yep. Yep. I don't oh, know if I could man. pick. I don't know if I could pick. I can't I either, dude. And that's, that's what I'm so saying. Hard. Like, Superman I literally versus... think of Superman when I hear that. <laughs> I mean, the but music say, says Superman. Like, that yeah. is yeah. just unbelievable. Like, it uh, arrives. And, it arrives like Superman. Like, bum, 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 bum. You know, and it's like, and it's like, yeah. Superman. Yeah, it absolutely does say that. That's what I'm saying. But I will say this. That makes me think of that character. And as much as I do, and even even though it is from Rocky and I know it's from Rocky, I just get pumped up when I hear da 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 I just like, I'm just pumped now and uh-huh. it's because of Rocky for sure, but I don't think of it as, as Rocky. Oh man. I, if that makes I, any see, sense. I, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can agree with that because when I think about it again, it's Rocky's late motif. Like they make that so sad in some of the in some of the movies, like mm-hmm. dun, yeah. dun 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 when they do it slow and it's oh, like a tinkling it's really piano. Good. It's really good. Dude, I was like, I the, yeah. I want to cry right now. It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> well, at the end of like Rocky Four, I bet you they do it. I, I I'm not no, I don't know that they do it, but I bet you they do it when he's like talking about how he's like low key got brain damage. <laughs> I, maybe they do it in Rocky Five. Yeah, when he's talking about like, yo, man, the events of Rocky Four really fucked me up, bro. I literally can't get off the toilet. <laughs> like my life Those is are, right now. It's so weird. Those are the exact lines, I believe. They, they, <laughs> I they mean, wanted to write you know. that first, but then they, you know, <laughs> had to cut it out. And <laughs> I'm just telling you, I mean, he was really messed up in Rocky Five. This only thing that I actually I don't even know what I'm shooting. I could be shooting right now. I don't fucking know. Why did he turn Australian for a second? I don't know. He did. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh, uh, Oi, Adrian. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Adrian. Okay. But but yeah, I, I, I think it is I think they're both as equally inextricable, but I okay, I'll go so far as to say as a piece of music, I understand how fresh the Superman theme really is. Hmm. But 
the gonna fly now shit is kind of funky too. Like it's That's got true. some scary, yeah. and some parts in there, and then, and then it leads up into this giant orchestral thing. It's like four songs in one fucking song. Oh, that's a good point, man. God, I just want to listen to that now. That's I'm getting pumped up just <laughs> thinking about it. Cause yeah, you're right. It does it does break down into like these complicated electric guitar riffs for like when he's training and failing, right? It's, mm-hmm. and then it it builds you back up for the end. Da-da-da, da-da-da, yeah. <laughs> oh man, so good. Dude, I mean, and that's kind of the point of us talking about these things is like when you hear the from my man bernard my man yep. bernie you know herm bernard <laughs> herm Herm's, baby when he, when, he, when he does when they go ah, 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 or when the birds are flying in the bird he also did the birds like i said frequent collaborator with our round face buddy hitchcock uh <laughs> i just really feel like these things are an aid of the storytelling we just did six damn hours on frank quietly over the course of the last uh, t- uh three episodes and what we were mostly talking about was his storytelling ability. Each of these composers we're talking about, I think the best of them, the ones that we're actually talking about, they see it as their job to help tell the story, if that makes sense. Very much so. I do. I want to mention, just moving us along to, to another guy who's famous. So Hans Zimmer, I think people you know, have sort of thought of him as overplayed because... He just has scored every blockbuster for like 20 years now. And his music sometimes sounds a little samey in a way that doesn't maybe work as well as a guy like John Williams when it starts to sound a little samey. But there's some shit that, that Hans Zimmer has done that is just instant classic. And one that maybe people don't think about enough is the Pirates of the Caribbean or Caribbean mm, uh, main theme, the dun 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 dun. You know that is really really good film composing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, he did. I, I first became aware of him probably when he started doing these huge movies of now, but he was doing Rain Man and all types of jazz like forever. Yeah. As kind of a under the radar, maybe Alan Silvestri, like people in the business know that he's the G, but mm. your average person doesn't know him. Like I said, he's not like John Williams. John Williams, John Williams could say tomorrow, hey man, I'm playing the the Roxy. <laughs> you know, and yeah. people would literally show up to watch that shit. I don't know, you know, Alan Silvestri would be like, I'm over here, I'll I'll sign some stuff. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know. Uh in this town, yes, you know, but right. John Williams is is worldwide. Well, it is it is worth knowing too that uh, Hans Zimmer wrote the score for Gladiator, which is an all timer, and again, not one of his more new wave scores. Um, I don't know. It's just yeah. that guy's had such an amazing career. I, obviously, yes. we could talk about Inception and Interstellar. Um, or, or no, which... I want to talk about Hannibal because uh, okay. uh, again, we, we got we got we got now we got we got a uh, we got. <laughs> We got uh, what's that disease that we were calling it? Where Ellen Silvestri disease? Where you got to put some food on the table, baby? Because like I don't, Hannibal was a terrible ass movie, mm. and the score is done by this dude who's just a brilliant. He did Last Samurai. I mean, this mm. guy goes high, low, high, low, just like anybody because he does so much. What do you think makes these dudes so like um, prolific? Because my man Basil, like I said, my man Basil Polidurus did a bunch of stuff. 
I don't think he did anywhere near as much stuff as a, a Zimmer, a Herman, a, a, a Ennio Morricone, Silvestri. Mm-hmm. What makes those people so prolific? Is it they got mouths to feed at the crib? You know? So, I mean, maybe. I, I also think that, and I think you saw it with Hans Zimmer. Like, once The Dark Knight came out, it's just every studio wanted Hans Zimmer to score their big action movie. And I think to a certain extent, especially with music, right? Like music is a little bit like the old bullpens of golden age comics where Will Eisner was quote unquote drawing all these comics, but it was really Will Eisner and like 10, 20 year old dudes that he just had in a sweatshop, um, which is unfair <laughs> to Will Eisner. But like that, I, mean, I know that's how hard it is to those dudes in a sweatshop, but still, <laughs> well, either way. <laughs> <laughs> I know for a fact that's how Hans Zimmer works because he's had a number of guys sort of graduate from being his assistant to being very successful composers in their own right. Mm. Um, So he, and he runs an entire operation over there in Germany. Um, So he can take on that work because he literally has like an entire production studios worth of, of musicians and composers and tech people all working with him. And so it's wow. like if you become a hot name and every studio is going to offer you every big movie and you have the capacity to actually deliver, like, why the fuck not? Wow. Wow. Uh, there are there are those who kind of know that Dr. Dre is like that, but nobody's ready for that conversation. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, let's uh, yeah, let's talk about uh, how, where Kanye gets a lot of his hooks from. You know, it's like, hey, hey, hey. nothing to see here. Gonna <laughs> load it up in the truck. Gotta roll it on out. Of here. Yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, I think I think we underestimate how much of art works that way in general, especially mm. art that's made for mass media. There's always a lot of hands on something before it's released for public consumption, and I think that goes right down to the music in the background of your movie, you know. And you don't think yeah. about it, but it's true. Sweatshops, baby. <laughs> Dude, I'm the, not in, saying that. No, no, I, I am though. Sweatshops, baby. That's where it's at. It's where it's at. Everybody get a sweatshop. That's the American dream. The American dream is to own your own sweatshop. Um, no, uh, now as far as an industry thing, though, uh, I think you're right. What do you think AI is going to write the next scores? Like Honestly, just kind of sampling all the music. Little Hans Zimmer, Little Williams. I mean, honestly. I think that's a very obvious place for the implementation of AI. I don't, and I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Um, I mean, okay, I'll say this. I think you could use, if you were a composer and you wanted to use AI to help you find notes or, or that sort of thing for moments, I could see that. I think the problem with AI right now is it's not going to be able to understand human emotion. It might write you a good hook. Like it, it might pull off a good hook for you. Some something that that sounds cool, a mix of if you said AI chatbot, uh make me a mix of John Williams and and Alan Silvestri, uh some kind of theme from from them. He would pull the notes from those two things, find uh the rules to music put those things together and it would probably sound pretty decent, but I don't think you would be able to punctuate human emotions and, and push, push things with AI yet. I don't think it's quite there. 
maybe one day, but I don't think it's there yet. I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're not wrong, but also like how much, how, how perfect a manipulation of, of emotions does a movie producer need to say that a score is good enough? Okay. You know God I mean? damn it, Bill. I don't like your <laughs> thoughtful I, way of destroying a, a composer's lives. Well, no, nor do I, but it's a little bit like, like I, I loathe AI art for any number of reasons, but I also recognize that like, as soon as AI art isn't generating the most fucked up hands you've ever seen, it is a viable alternative for illustrating anything from like sci-fi magazines to movie posters. And I hope that doesn't happen. And I would say the same thing about AI art. Like it doesn't actually know what it's doing in a way that can like speak to the nuances and subtleties of a story or, or even of what an image is supposed to say. It's very shallow but that never stopped anybody trying to make money before. You know? Oh, and real and, and real quick, I think the thing that it that it the sad part about it is, Ron, it uses our how deep we are to like enhance it, right? So cuz when people look at this AI yes. portrait of their dumb girlfriend, they go, "Oh shit. Look how beautiful she is. She looks so plastic <laughs> and and sort of just damp." but also well-coiffed and thinner than I remember her. Wow. Yeah. Look at all this. I'm giving it, you see, and it doesn't yeah. have to be shit. It's just a collection of uh, bullshit. Uh, you know, people's people's uh, late motifs of mm. many millions of people's art, but it, 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 it's a Rorschach test for you. And so in that same way, if a computer knows that, so-called flats are sad and so-called highs are this or whatever it can go okay appropriate number of flats appropriate right. number of sad sounds you know well uh, if you think about it like music music is the most mathematical art form mm -hmm. like music is just all about rhythms and patterns you know what i mean so to a certain extent i do think that just a, a sort of a dumb ai analysis of music probably could produce something if not genius uh serviceable you know what i mean well oh yeah. you know it did this last thing's last on this particular topic because i hate the computers are taking over our minds to the point where they don't even have to be present even though we are all literally directly looking at computers um the, yeah. th the thing that's interesting to me about all of that shit is that like the the its ability to translate emotion i think you're right that's always going to be it's downfall and all this kind of shit. But like, I feel like we all as artists, whatever kind of art you're in, I think we're all just trying to take our art and save it from AI and throw mm. somebody else's art in front of it. Even when we and Bill were talking about AI, Bill was like, yo, I'm not going to use it to, ch to cheat on my art, but I could use it for my own process and I can refine it. And then I think we both talked about like, if we could use it to like fix our cars, the mechanics what? over there, like, Hey, what the fuck? <laughs> well, that's, what the but, I mean, that is that is the dirty little secret of AI is everybody's like, well, yeah, you could put so and so out of business. I don't give a shit about that, but right. just don't do it to me. You know, right? So like, we're we're, okay. we're like we're visual artists. So hey, man, make a film score with that shit. Throw somebody else's baby into the gaping maw of the machine. Right? <laughs> you know, okay, listen, just listen to this, mind. guys. To this moment while you were talking about it, I signed on to Chat GPT. 
and <laughs> I put make an action movie score with John Williams and Alan Silvestri style. Like, obviously, it's not making a score right now because that's not one of the things it does. But check this out. There's a title to the to the thing. It's called Rising Fury. Composers <laughs> dope, dope already. By the way, I'm buying a ticket. <laughs> Seriously, composers John William and Alan Silvestri. Opening sequence and <laughs> intense chase scene. Fast pa fast paced brass and string ostinatos create a sense of urgency, accompanied by pounding percussion and driving rhythms. Blaring brass fanfares add drama and excitement, while rapid <laughs> strings and woodwinds add tension. Epic choir wrong? vocals soar over the orchestra, adding a sense of grandiosity to the chase. The music <laughs> builds in intensity as the chase progresses with sweeping yep. melodies and powerful percussion hits driving the action forward. Main theme, hero's theme, a heroic and uplifting melody played by the brass and strings with a sense of triumph and determination. Orchestral swells and cymbal crashes highlight key moments of bravery and valor. Yep. A sense of adventure and daring is conveyed through fast-paced string runs and dynamic brass flourishes. I mean, it's got like a whole thing for combat scenes, I mean, dramatic that, that moments. That theme just is the Superman theme. Like, that's just what it's describing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, and I think I think that's I think that was instructive because it just shows you it isn't about how far machines are from replacing us or whatever. Because when you really look at it, each of those instructions, every oh, single instruction in that could be interpreted a billion different ways. That's and that's thing. why that fucking thing can't do it. Yeah. And even when it can, there's billions beyond that. Maybe the cool thing is it'll create billions of compositions for us to avoid. Like it'll create so many compositions that we'll hear so many AI compositions that we'll start to have an ear for AI music. And then it's just, then it's just racism again. Cause I listen to AI crap. All right. Now look, <laughs> let, let's look at our, let's look at some of the shit's most iconic themes. We looked at um, Superman by John Williams. I'd like to uh, bring it to the four, the James Bond theme, which Ooh. is the fucking shit. Yep. The James Bond theme is the shit. And we've been this long without talking about it. Who composed that? We gotta, we gotta give them proper props. Uh, by, uh, Monty Norman uh, did that. I'm looking it up right Monty here. Norm's. Love me some Monty Norm. <laughs> yeah, me too. M. Norms. <laughs> that guy, M. Norms. But but yes, uh, he did that shit. Uh, obviously, he drinks mail. He drinks he drinks beer and he delivers mail. <laughs> I, I think I'm gonna drink mail. <laughs> yeah, he delivers mail. beer. <laughs> delivers beer. Good times. Uh, but yeah, no, I I think that the James Bond themes last because it does have all the stuff we were talking about from that Chat GPT thing. It has like the orchestral swell, like the 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 horns are where you get kind of the bodiness of James Bond. Like the horns aren't just triumphant; they're also a little bit. One out, one out. Look at me. I'm in a I'm in a car. I'm doing a 360 drift, shoot a bunch of guys. There's a, something swaggy about how the horns come in on there, in my personal mm. opinion. No, I agree. I think that whole there's like a Lothario aspect to the, to that entire thing. Like it, Yeah. It, it just it's it feels a little seedy. You know what I mean? Like it it feels a little underhanded. It's it's like it's not telling you something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dude. Oh, and obviously the Braveheart score, guys. Oh, shit, dude. Thank you. That is so yeah. worth bringing. One of the greats of all time. Who composed that? Ah, uh, my main man, Jamie Horns. James, James Horner. James Horner is good. 
Yeah. That, that boy good. James Harden good. good. <laughs> well, no, we haven't, talked, we haven't really talked about him yet, and and I think we should spend some time because sure. he, uh, he also, again, for a movie you kind of take or leave, the Avatar score is really good. <laughs> I mean, it would have to be. It's getting over a bunch of bullshit, you know. It's it's like it's like lending so much emotional heft to what is essentially a bunch of bullshit. So it it has to do like a lot of. I'm not trying to be an asshole. I'm saying everybody knows how facile that story is and stuff. It just you know <laughs> what. I'm not, I'm not, What's I, funny to me is like there's a guy on my feed who went and saw. Uh, the second Avatar, like sixteen times on my Facebook feed, and <laughs> literally says it's the best movie that's been made. Uh, and Avatar One is the second best movie, and I just think that's funny because Ed uh, is right in my opinion, <laughs> but that just shows that opinions are weird. Yeah, you no know, accounting for taste, and and taste is subjective. Something happened to him. He was like, "Look, man." I think people with too much body hair, too much specular diffusion did something to him. So he goes into this world where everything is free of body hair. <laughs> everything is everything mm-hmm. is in, in, in the ocean. It's slick and smooth. Even the leaves are slick and smooth and everything is just like a dolphin's butt. And I think people do love to be in that world. They, they did say that Pandora induced stuff in people. Like they wanted to go back. To living in that world, I think people are just susceptible to that, and it's like Star Wars too. So shots fired, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, I, dude, I, you're right about James Horner. By the way, I, I, I mean, I'm just looking at some of the stuff he's done. Troy, A Beautiful Mind, even The Mask of Zorro, which is way better movie than people give it props for, mm. uh, is amazing. Jumanji, Forty Eight Hours, and Commando. Did, God damn it, yeah. Forty Eight Hours at Commando with the steel drums, damn and he did it. Titanic. He did fucking yeah. Titanic. He's a, he's a Cameron guy. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want to get here's here's a, le, a more out of left field, pun intended, one of Horner's works, and that is Field of Dreams. Yeah. Ooh. I was gonna bring the that. Field up. of Dreams score is incredibly um sort of mystical, understated, you know, not at all the big pounding drums, and it is so good. So that shows his his range, his versatility as a composer. Oh yeah, Cocoon. Holy oh, and shit. the Legend of Zorro, and I mean the Mask of Zorro and the Legend of Zorro, but the Mask of Zorro as well. Like yeah. he, when you look at the teams, like when you start to look at these filmmakers and these composers, you can start to see how they're placing the teams up. Like if I was in 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 hindsight, the guy who directed, I think the guy who directed Mask of Zorro directed like James Bond movies before and stuff. I'm like, okay, put the James Bond movie score guy, I mean movie guy, mm-hmm. with the score guy that's handled everything from, you know, 48 Hours to Predator to, you know, American President or whatever. All this different crap. I don't think he did American President, but he did something else. Sure. Uh, he did clear and present danger. So Yeah, see, enough. shit like that. Yeah there, yeah, there you go. He can handle this if you give it yeah. to him. You can see, you can see it click like the different teams click. And then like you're saying, Bill, I guess sometimes people just decide you're my guy. You can communicate. Like when I shoot the scene and the lady just sort of falls behind the curtain and it doesn't look very dramatic. You go "Ah, ah, ah, ah," (laughs) and you make it go, baby. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, I, I think we, we as um, 
viewers don't often appreciate, like, obviously we know that directors and cinematographers will work together a lot, but honestly, most directors, they, they will work with their entire team, the cinematographer, mm-hmm. the production designer, the costume person, the composer, like it's very seldom that you see a director who will have any department head different on all of their movies. Yeah. Um, because it, it just makes the process, it streamlines the process so much. And again, the director's voice is really the accumulation of all those other people's voices. And so it's like, if that's what you're paying for as a studio, and if that's what you're trying to achieve as a director, you got to bring all those people along with you. Yeah, because they, they get your voice, if indeed you have one, you know. Well, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, any any other, uh, like, because obviously we've talked about big themes from our lives as pop culture geeks, male pop culture geeks. Maybe there's other pieces of music from other movies, like somebody's like screaming at their thing, the Out of Africa soundtrack by <laughs> some damn body, you know, probably James Horner or somebody or Alan Silvestri. But you know what well, I'm saying? Like, uh, I don't know, there's, you know. To that point, I just want to point out, like, one of the off the beaten path soundtracks or scores rather that come to mind for me is the Lion King, the original um, animated version of the Lion King, written by none other than Hans Zimmer. He won an Oscar for it. Wow. (laughs) That's crazy. Hans Zimmer does a kid's movie. Uh, Also, a Mission Impossible uh, is Ennio Morricone music, too. Oh, really? The Mission Impossible theme. Yeah. See, it is funny how wild. the deeper you dive into this, you're like, oh, it's just a handful of dudes. Like, <laughs> all of this great stuff from all these movies, because they are all such workhorses, it's not like it's a huge pool of people that you're pulling from. Oh, and John Barry did uh, Out of Africa. I think John Barry also did a lot of James Bond music after that original guy you know what I'm saying? Supplied yeah. the theme. I think John yeah. Barry got on there and did a lot of a lot of music after that. But uh, oh, let's talk about Howard Shore, who did a billion tons of shit, including Lord of the Rings, because yes. that's a lot of music for your ass. I don't, and, and I'm and I'm I'm stepping outside my body because everybody within the sound of my voice knows I don't really fuck with Lord of the Rings like that. But I'm not going to front on that music. That music was very involving. It made me feel, even though I had no connection to any of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I Howard Shore. Um, I think he's won Oscars for original song as well, because he's writing those, those songs that appear within like both the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit movies. Um, I'm, uh, I don't know much about him, so I'm going to look him up real quick. I obviously have great appreciation for the Lord of the Rings music. Um, apparently he's a Cronenberg guy. He's, he's direct or he's collaborated with, David Cronenberg uh, on all but one of his films since 1979. Mm-hmm. I just one of the the one the only one that really affected my life until I started really looking into it is the Silence of the Lambs. His score for Silence of the Lambs is one of those things where it's like I think it was one of the original mm-hmm. ones where you don't think about it too much, but it puts you exactly where you need to be. Yeah, yeah, that is it's an unsettling score. Just looking up a little bit about Howard Shore, uh, he was the he was the musical director for Saturday Night Live in its early seasons. Wow! Um, and he was the one who actually came up with the name the Blues Brothers for Acura and Belushi. Wow! Yeah, huh. none other than Howard Shore. Dude, Andy did seven and the game. Ooh. 
And I'm, I, those are wow. my some, two of my favorite David Seven. I mean, David Seven, <laughs> two of my favorite David Fincher um, scores. So there's that too. Like the fact that he was able to get that new generation because he's been around for like a while. You know, uh, I will I will give him props. He did Gangs of New York. That score, you want to talk mm. about some like era appropriate music, kind of blending. That yeah. old like Irish diaspora sound with some, you know, snare drums and trumpets for the America sound. Like there's some really unique, especially for a Martin Scorsese movie, um, because that one has no diegetic or or soundtrack music. Like excuse me, it has lots of diegetic music, actually, no soundtrack music. So Scorsese mm. can't do his needle drops that he loves doing. It's all period specific. And so that's a lot of work being done by Howard Shore that's really good. Dude, oh, dude, he, he composed the f- score of the cell too. Ooh, oh, ooh. man, <laughs> that score was pretty good. That movie is not very good, but <laughs> that okay. score was very arresting at certain parts. You're just like too busy watching a music video to uh, to appreciate <laughs> how dope the music was. But yeah, he um, scored Mrs. Doubtfire too. Like he, that's oh, actually a great got score. He's yeah. got range. Um, that's pretty impressive because comedy. Well, that's interesting. Who who yeah, does the most yeah. comedies? Let's let's talk about that. It's funny because you don't often think about score in comedy, and now that you mention Mrs. Doubtfire, Ed, like that actually does have a great score. I'd put that right up there with uh, Chris Columbus for Home Alone. Uh, excuse me, Chris Columbus directed Home Alone. Uh, John Williams freaking scored Home Alone. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, that's crazy. I did. I all these years I did not know that. Yeah. I've never fully processed that fact that that movie had that going for it too. I mean, yeah, that, like that's kind of the home run for for as much as that movie had working against it. I think hiring John Williams to do your score that is that is possibly the only comedy I could think of that has that iconic of a you know you hear you hear three seconds of it and you're like oh yes that movie you know. Mm-hmm. Know, Did you look up a got... list of top comedy scores, Ron? I'm top curious. comedy scores. Actually, I'm looking up who did the store the score for a Christmas story. Oh, that's got to be like a TV composer or something. That movie was so low budget. Uh, Carl Zitterer and Paul Zaza on Apple Music. Wait, no, that's that can't be right. Carl Zercher's a name Just... I I recognize. Maybe I'm maybe I'm thinking of a comic book artist. I don't know. Well, oh, Patrick was... Zercher is a comic book artist. Ah, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's very active on Twitter. I got clear lines that didn't because and and we've already accounted oh, no, for it's about right. twenty minutes that homeboy shit was fucking up. So <laughs> so so it is. I was what I was confused about was it's on Apple Music and it is Carl Zitterer and Paul Zaza. Who did uh, the music from Christmas Story? It, so. It's funny how um, comedies are really more associated with soundtracks. It's like you think about the needle drops in comedies, yeah, way more than you do about the the scores. Um, which doesn't mean they're bad; they're just more workmanlike. Like they just kind of get the job done. And you know what I'm thinking? Yeah. Actually, I like those those. Um, Adam Sandler, mid nineties movies, like happy Gilmore, Billy Madison, big daddy, things like that. Yeah. Like 
the score is very present if I'm remembering those movies correctly. It's just they don't actually do the work of leitmotifs and, you know, marches and this and that. It's like it's just there to kind of punctuate, oh, you feel good when you feel good. You know, it's funny when or you, you laugh at, at these funny parts and then this is the menacing part when the villain glowers or whatever, you know. It just doesn't have the the meat on the bone of a lot of these other scores. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a guy named Randy Edelman uh, did uh, the score for um, uh, for Billy Madison, and then he also did Twins, Ghostbusters 2, Kindergarten mm-hmm. Cop, Beethoven, <laughs> uh, Gettysburg, Dragonheart, and Triple X. Hey, hey. Oh, my God. Oh. Look at this guy. <laughs> yeah, that's can, interesting. Can you be a, a C-list composer? Because <laughs> he is. <laughs> that's dope. Okay. Oh, but, but finishing off with, with some somebody A-list, I think we should just talk about somebody who has come up on the scene recently and is that dude and is very good. And I yeah. think his name is Ludwig Gorenson. That dude is for real the shit. And I yeah. think he's gonna go down like one of these Quincy Jones types, these, these, uh, these John Berries, these, these guys we're talking about, the James Horners. In the end, it's gonna be like that, man. John Williams, even. It's gonna be like that, dude. Cause he's, he's working with the top brands already, which make no mistake is why you're John Williams is in everybody's goddamn mouth with all these big brands. Beyond his talent, it's these big brands. No, very much. I mean, and I think he's unique in that he is actually a very in-demand composer for pop music. You know, he Mm -hmm. does, he does hip hop and rap and, and, and pop, but he now is getting bigger and bigger. I mean, you know, not only has he worked with, with Kugler on everything that he's done, um, but he was freaking hired by Christopher. It was the first time Christopher Nolan hadn't used Hans Zimmer in like a decade when he brought on Ludwig to score Tenet. Mm, that, and like that's yeah. a, that's a very significant thing when you're you're replacing Hans Zimmer as like the go-to partner for one of the biggest filmmakers of the generation. Yeah. Oh, and, and he the, yeah. He also did um uh Warner uh, he also did some Star Wars stuff too. I He's he's the he is uh, he composed at least the pilot. He may have done the music supervision for the whole first season of The Mandalorian. So, so yeah. is he the guy who came up with boom boom boom? Yep. Yeah, he came he came up with the music for Mandalorian, and, and I think I think he remains on the score of that. Actually, I just think they they yeah. kind of probably have some some of that Dr. Dre <laughs> and that Hans Zimmer <laughs> going on as far as like applying the different shits. But I think what's dope about Ludwig as he is able to make something iconic because that Mando thing, I man, every time Mando I, does I, anything, that fucking whistle plays, boom, and I boom. love it. Yeah, oh, I love so it. Good. And the whistle is part of it because it's like the screech of a falcon, but then the bass of like a big man. Weird. So a big man boom, and a screeching boom. falcon yeah. come at you. That's him and his jetpack. That's him and his ship. It's like these two forces. Like if a bear and a falcon could attack you. From two sides at once. Both on cocaine. That's the Mando theme. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's the Mando theme. Well, I'm I'm very much looking forward to what he does with Oppenheimer because he is working with Nolan again on the new one. Um, mm, yeah. And that could be really awesome. I mean, one of the things that I remember 
as as really you know I so I knew he was Childish Gambino's producer when Gambino came out with his first album because he actually name checks him in one of the songs. He's like, I put in work, ask Ludwig, and everyone was like, Who the fuck is Ludwig? Because at that <laughs> point, Donald Glover had pulled him he was composing for community he was a tv composer mm-hmm. and donald glover collaborated him to cre- collaborated with him to create childish gambino um but the thing that really put me over on him was i saw some sort of a some sort of behind the scenes making of for black panther cuz he 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 uh, composed the first black panther and wakanda forever but for the first one he spent like six months in Africa traveling from like village to village recording like folk music from all these different villages and like learning to play their instruments and things like that Mm -hmm. just to get as authentic a sound as he could for that movie. That's crazy. That is crazy that a white dude stole black people's music. (laughs) That is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, hey, if Elvis had a win any goddamn where and sat in the dirt and learned anything, we wouldn't hate him so much. That's I true. know that to be true. 100%. We, we, yeah. we treat that motherfucker like the white wolf. All the, all the, I just really appreciate the Mando music the most. I, I just think it, it really is timeless in a way because of, of that tradition of like using westerny sort of instruments with a little bit of a eastern flair and all of his world traveling gathering of all these different instruments and all these different uh, time even the the time signature for the different music the mm. different stings that he uses i think they just have a little bit more flair than your average person who grew up with this is a sting and it's a set of strings and this chord and this is how you do it and this is how many violinists you need. He's going like, I got one oboe dude, a dude who plays bones <laughs> and a fucking synthesizer and I'm going to do the sting with that. <laughs> I think there's something to that when you listen to the music in Mando. I think it's doing I think it's doing a lot of work, honestly, to get the some emotionality across that may not be in some of those performances. Okay, moving well, along. I mean, especially, but <laughs> I, not even taking anything away from the actors, especially when your main character has a helmet on the whole time. Exactly. And your, sec- and your second lead is a puppet. You, you yes. need the music to do some emotional heavy lifting. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Hey, you know what? I just wanted to mention one thing from my youth, the score to Lady Hawk. It's done by like the dude uh, Andrew Powell from the Alan Parsons Project or some shit. I just yes, I just I didn't have that name. I just looked it up. But Jesus Christ, that shit sounds so contemporary, meaning eighties, and the movie is set in like the medieval times. Yeah, Lady Hawk's score is so incongruous. I think it's it's up there, dude. It's up there, and like, why does this sound like this, but look like this? I think there are a, only a few scores that really try to go against the grain. Like, imagine if Blade Runner just was made of cave instruments. <laughs> yeah, that's a good call. I've always okay. I've always felt that way about the score for 2001, which is all the classical music, where it's like you're trying to tell this very futuristic sci-fi story, and you're using music that was like Beck composed in powdered wig days. So mm-hmm. I, I love that sort of incongruity. And you are right. Lady Hawk is one of those weird ones that, like, for people of a certain age – you refer to it a lot, and then people outside of our age group are like, what the fuck is Lady Hawk? Because <laughs> it's not necessarily like a big blockbuster from the 80s. It is a 
it is a little remembered Dick Donner classic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I do want to bring up one, just just one one of them that I think is one of those things where I don't think this guy has done much else, uh, but he made Friday the Thirteenth, the the music mm. for Friday the Thirteenth. Huh. Uh, Harry Men, yeah, yeah, Harry Medfredini made the 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 sound track for that, and he did a couple other things, but nothing that. Like it's literally, it's known for Friday the Thirteenth, and then Deep Star Six, House, and the Omega Code. Mm. So, like, I'm seeing Swamp Thing, 1982's Swamp Thing in his filmography. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what's interesting, and I mean, really. But when you nail one thing, that thing is so like that. Friday the Thirteenth is a, an iconic sound. You know. Yeah. Well, if, okay. We'll talk about. Uh, I think that almost. I think that counts as an iconic sound. Certainly, like uh, if they f- finally pick a sound for. You know what's fucking crazy? Hmm. They don't have a schnicked sound for Wolverine's claws. The last fifteen fucking years, they've been watching him ease out of his fucking knuckles at this measured pace. It, there is no. Shnick, there is no schnicked. There's no nothing. They don't really have one. That you that that should be iconic in your head. As many yeah. Wolverine movies as we've seen, the whoosh, whatever that sound is, it should be like the Bionic Man sound to you, and it isn't. Or like they, firing up a lightsaber, you know what I mean? Like it's that. Yes, iconic yes, 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 yeah, yeah, yes. Absolutely. That's it should be like that, but it's not because they yeah. fucked up somewhere along the line, and nobody nobody addressed that. There's no snick sound. That's. Snicked is Wolverine. I'm sorry. If you took all those word word balloons out of all those panels, I don't think there is a resting. Maybe our next uh, audio-based greatest pod should be best sound effects. Most yes. iconic sound effects <laughs> from, from movies. And then we could talk yeah. about the ones that should exist but don't. Yes. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah. How are dude, we going to do an hour on that? Well, we did an hour on this. So... <laughs> Please. I think we could do I think we could do two episodes on sound effects. You don't realize until you get into it that like that's true. Ev- every conception you have of what a laser or a spaceship or even a fight sounds like. And like why do lasers in roaring? It's all yeah, fake. Why, and why do lasers why do lasers sound like some of them sound like choo choo and some of them sound like like they have that extra layer of because they're hitting a fucking pole <laughs> thing oh how about the dinosaur roar in uh you know what you're right yeah. we're gonna have yeah. to do a whole nother <laughs> greatest yeah. fucking side effects but anyway as we dismount out of this one i just want top five uh top five actual themes in your opinion we got superman yeah we got jaws we got uh indiana jones got james bond rocky rocky gotta say rocky yeah Okay, that's five. Are there? Is there anything that can unseat one of those five? I was just going to say from our the the Jurassic Park theme, which I would just consider the T Rex's theme, might be mm. might be in the running there. I talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Look, man. I mean, I still think the Emperor, the Star Wars. Oh, the Vader, yeah, the the Imperial the Vader Arch, theme, the or Vader just the theme. regular Star oh, yeah. Wars theme. Okay, what's it going to knock out out of those ones that we listed? That is the God, that's tough. That's the problem, <laughs> dude. That's that's how hard it is. Because like, we should do a bracket. Okay, there have to be some that shine above the others. I think James Bond and Superman are up there 
If we're just talking about things that are utterly recognizable, you're yeah. or you fuck a chop it to the bush and fuck Papa Do Giddy, and yeah. you play this, and somebody knows exactly what the fuck you're talking about. You know what's interesting? I mean, Mission Impossible might actually qualify if that's the thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, dun, oh, dun, 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 and you know, dun, we didn't dun, fucking dun, dun, talk dun, about dun. at all the goddamn batman score oh not the soundtrack the batman score is coming through with really big energy yeah listen we got to give it up for danny elfman danny elfman's been a little off his game of recent years but danny elfman wins forever on the back of batman 89 and the simpsons theme yeah motherfucker composed the simpsons theme don't don't forget nightmare before christmas Dude, oh, and I, mean, I think well. he did the uh, Tales of the Crypt theme too, which is a banger. Did he? The Tales of the Crypt theme is a banger. I'm gonna look it up, make sure. But oh man, he's great. Danny Elfman's great. And the Beetlejuice theme. I mean, that's yeah. That, I think the I think the listeners right now uh, are. The, the thing that they've enjoyed the most is us actually singing the theme songs. So um, <laughs> Look, we don't want to get a copyright strike on this, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> so you're going to listen to us hum these themes. That's how it works. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> but yeah, so awesome. I, Denny Elfman is, is a champ dude. I Batman theme versus Batman theme, Superman theme, Rocky theme. I think we're experiencing a theme here. Mm, that, yeah. Like these outside superheroes need, need this it symbolizes who they are you know yeah so like by the way interesting that we've got two big dc characters but i'm not gonna make an argument that iron man or captain america or any of the other characters theme songs bust into that as iconic which is pretty interesting if you think about i mean if we're doing this conversation in 70 years maybe but maybe. maybe these other themes would have become even more iconic. If you strike me down with obsolescence, I should become more powerful with classicism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, let me throw this one out there. As, as, as long as we're talking Danny Elfman, Danny Elfman's Spider-Man theme Man. might be the most iconic Marvel theme that we've got going. Oh, shit. It's just wild. Because like, it, it, in the run... Can't even hear it because he hates those movies. Now I can't. What what is it? Like I can't even. I can't. It's, it's right. so think about think about the the TikToks of the guys who like drop something and catch it. Da, 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 da. Oh yeah. Da, 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 da. You know yeah yeah. There's also there's the more heroic version that I, is not coming to mind right away, but it's got a real. It's got that real Danny Elfman like rolling, you know, fast paced drums. Um, but I'm just thinking of like that sim- simple trumpet. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of that, that trumpet, though, got to give it up for whoever did the score for um, the Incredibles, because the Incredibles had to be music that mimicked the superhero era, the spy era, and Ooh, all that shit all together. Oh, Michael Giacchino did the new Batman, which is just the Imperial March with some rain on it. <laughs> <laughs> the new Batman theme is like boom, 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 boom. But wait, what? Bum 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 <laughs> bum bum bum. Yep, and that's the rain falling on it. That's not, that's that's not some kind of R. Kelly ASMR. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I made bad jokes here, Ed. Ah, you gotta keep that shit in. 
Don't, don't you edit that out, you son of a bitch. Um, so Giacchino did do The Incredibles. And it, it, worth <sighs> noting, Michael Giacchino has done um, a bunch of... He did the new Mission Impossible movies for J.J. Abrams and the new Star Trek movies for J.J. Abrams. Oh, see, a young bull. So, yeah, okay, we, well, we picked basically the top iconic ones. Now we're drafting our young bulls coming up. So uh, Gorenson, that dude, what, Tyler Bates... <laughs> Ooh, I don't will, know. They be, will, will they be humming the John Wick theme? <laughs> oh man, I don't, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I don't think so. Michael Giacchino like, though gets special shout out. He has transitioned from being a composer to being a director. Directed Werewolf by Night. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows what's what. He wants to push yeah. somebody around and give them four weeks to do something impossible. He's like, yeah, so, sign me up. <laughs> So I want to mention a couple of themes that I maybe won't we won't include, but I do think they're kind of interesting to mention, and that's the Pink Panther theme. Oh, iconic, fully iconic. And then uh, Shaft. Ooh, oh, yeah. Isaac Hayes himself. Yeah, well, we actually mentioned that on the soundtrack episode because right. it's that yeah. titular song tells the whole story of the song. But yeah, he did the score as well. I do believe. Yeah, he did. So I don't know. I just uh, wanted to mention those two, th- to those those two themes for for characters that I I think uh, are are good to include. And maybe they won't uh, quite. I mean, arguably they climb into iconic as. I mean, Pink Panther's got to be as iconic as gonna fly now, doesn't it? I mean, Pink Panther is an amazing piece of music that I think is only it only suffers from being a little bit obsolete. You yeah, know, it's like you just you just haven't heard it in a long time for for many reasons. Yeah, I think Uh-oh. I think Star Wars theme, Star Wars themes and certain superhero stuff, if it isn't too dated, like nobody remembers the music from Swamp Thing eighty one or whatever. Although we, right. we earlier the record, we actually looked up who did that, but nobody like remembers that in specific. It's just it's a piece of the time. But that's the whole yeah. point of a, anything classic, right? Casablanca was made with the same means, the same screenwriters, the same actors, the same sets, the same everything as a 200 other movies that year. Mm. Those movies are not Casablanca because something magic happened that hasn't, you know, been reapproximated. Um, so, yeah, I think these themes, they're, they're, I think Star Wars is up there dude i don't even fuck with it like that but star wars themes make you feel something in your belly you know what i'm saying yeah if I mean, you're I, a, of a certain age i think top five is is hard to narrow down especially if you're talking about like just iconic characters or iconic franchises yeah, and it's also hard. yeah maybe 10 maybe mm-hmm. i also want to throw out there sorry this is my last uh from the bleachers shot but <laughs> um a guy who really doesn't have a lot more to his resume is Don Davis, who composed the music for all the Matrix movies. Oh, shit. Yeah. Nice. I mean, and you want to talk about a score that maybe is, is going to suffer for obsolescence, as you put it, Ed. Like, I don't know if the Matrix score is really going to be appreciated 50 years from now because – it was never about like themes in the way that we've been talking about it, mm-hmm. but for a score that inarguably enhances the movie, tells the story, puts yep. you in a sense of time and place, like that score is unbelievable. Yeah, I think we can't do it. I think we can do it. I think we can do the top ten. Okay, it is. I got a, a document open it. It is motherfucking Star Wars in no particular order. Star Wars, 
Superman, mm. Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. James Bond, mm-hmm. Batman. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Okay, that's five. Yep. Now, what are the Rocky. ones that are left? Rocky, Rocky Jaws. Do we do Jaws? Did Jaws. I say Jaws? Okay, seven. Jurassic I Park. Jurassic Park is eight. I I would say Pirates of the Caribbean. All right, well, we split the difference between that and and um and Back to the Future, right? Shit. I mean, <laughs> I kind of feel like they they both need their own place on this list if we're going best okay, of all if time. We, if we did Back to the Future, Pirates, I don't know if I could give you that. I'm the holy tribunal in this. Okay. I mean, listen, the, you're, oh, you're you're you know you have a, you have a bias because of your age, but I'm telling you, like that I'm, is. The most memorable score for people like 25 and under. Okay, well, that's too bad because I'm putting Conan in that spot. Too bad. <laughs> fucking, you fucking son Conan, of a bitch. Conan ends out as 10. Because, dude, come on. Conan is very iconic. Uh, der- people have sampled it, der- derived a bunch of stuff from it. People tempt stuff with it. And I think it's it's Basil Palladuris has to be on this list somewhere. I'm sorry. But we, we, we didn't use, uh, oh, is any more Conan on here? Mission Impossible, right? We put that on here, right? You said you were keeping the list. You said you had a document open. I was just using my fingers. You saw me use both of my fingers. But yeah, I think he made it on there. But yeah, if not, we'd have to move something around. I guess Basil Polidors would get knocked off if we didn't put more coin in there. But either way, I think that's a good basis for like the type of music that we find iconic. And I think it's going to be interesting to see the type of music that people find iconic in the future. But one thing you can do from a far flung future is look at your review that you left us about this podcast. We read those on air. It'll make you an icon. If you want to join our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash the greatest pod. You get extra podcasts and art and all that good stuff. You can choose a tier get on there. Patreon, patreon.com slash the greatest pod. And as always, thank you for listening to this symphonic, composed, epically moving episode of The Greatest Pod.